because you're jumping back into the gut. All right, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, is awesome today to have Josh Longstaff with us. Uh, Josh is an assistant coach with the Milwaukee Bucks. He was previously head coach of the Erie Bayhawks and assistant coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder and New York Knicks. And uh, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it. Well, great to have you. And, uh, you know, a few things stand out. One is you've been a head coach. You've had an opportunity to be able to apply some ideas. And then two, you're part of this Milwaukee Bucks team, which is obviously of interest to so many coaches around. So we're excited to be able to talk about some of the things around these programs that you've been a part of. So let's start first. Let's talk a little bit about some of the culture pieces and maybe some of the similarities or unique things that the Bucks and the Bayhawks culture have brought for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting because when I was interviewing for the Bayhawks job with Coach Budenholzer and Malik Rose, who was the GM at the time, it was great because Coach Bud coming from San Antonio and myself starting in Oklahoma City, we had similar mindset on culture and philosophy. So it was really a perfect fit um, for me to become a first-time head coach and um, to carry out, you know, Coach Budenholzer's beliefs and cultural beliefs in Erie. And it really, it's the same today in Milwaukee, but it really starts with promoting growth for the staff, for the players. You can just feel it when you walk in every day. You have an opportunity to learn, to grow, to fail, to succeed, to learn. So that's really like the number one thing I think that you really feel. And then you know, you feel a sense of commitment. Everyone's committed to their own growth. Everyone's committed to the team. And then there's a competitive aspect to that as well. People are competitive in their individual growth, the team growth. So I think those three things are what really make up special culture that uh, Coach Bud brings to, to both teams. Well, what, what struck me, and I, I had a chance to watch you guys practice, uh, what was it, two years ago now, and uh, what struck me is just, again, how everyone was involved. And there were a lot of people around the court. There's a training camp, of course, so there were a lot of people around the court, but everyone was involved. Everyone had their role, and it looked like everyone was empowered in their role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what makes, you know, Milwaukee special, Coach Bud special, is he believes in the staff, empowers them to go out and kind of just coach. We all coach offense. We all coach defense. We all do player development. We all build relationships with each player. And he kind of gives us free reign to go out and, and to do our thing and working with players, talking with them, preaching his message to them. And it's really great. Like the players credit to them to, you know, accepting that. And, um, you know, it's, it's like you said, you got to see it firsthand. It's, it's great to be working for someone that, that uh, promotes that. Well, and, and obviously the success speaks for itself, but uh, we're going to focus today on defense and, you know, start with some defensive identity and talk about that a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, the Bucks and obviously your experiences as well as a head coach. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, defense is obviously we've been fortunate the last two seasons to be number one defensive efficiency. And, and a lot of it, I think, is the roster. You know, we have a great roster of competitive, defensive minded players. And Coach Bud has done a great job kind of just formulating his defensive philosophy around who we have on the roster and how it plays to their strengths. And it's, it's honestly, it's really simple. Like we really promote just competing one possession at a time, making multiple efforts, not getting screened, keeping your man in front, you know, dominating the effort plays and just competing longer, harder, smarter for 48 minutes. And we want to defend together. You know, everything we do is, is together. We're better defensively together uh, than we are as individuals. So it's really as simple as that. Uh, it sounds simple, right? Compete and, and play hard together and those different things with it. But, you know, defensive identity, let's just go into that a little bit. How is this being introduced? How are players being sold on this in terms of getting buy-in? What are some process of getting them defensive identity that's been so key to your success there within your organization? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's kind of similar, I would think, to a lot of teams and having been fortunate enough to do it myself uh, and, you know, teaching, you know, Coach Bud's philosophy. And it's really like, I think you need to set the expectation right up front. Let the guys know this is who we are. Almost give them a roadmap of how we're going to defend, how we're going to get to being the best defensive team that we possibly can. And throughout that roadmap, like sticking to the things that are really important to us and not, uh, you know, going off a track of who we really are, you know, not faltering, you know, away from, you know, those particular things. So it's, you know, it's really as simple as laying the groundwork, sticking to who we are, um, holding guys accountable to those simple things. And, you know, the players, I think they buy in, they, they may test you here and there, but they see that it, it works and there's a plan in place to help put them in position to be as successful as possible. Messaging is important, obviously, based on what you're saying, but you talked about accountability too. What are some things coaches can think about in terms of keeping players accountable? And, and really, again, I get it in this example, like players are accountable. You know, there's financial gain, there's team success gain, there's all these different things. But just in terms of thinking about the general picture of keeping players accountable to defense, what are some things to keep them on track? I think, you know, with defense too, there's a lot of things that you can control as a player. Like you can control your effort in certain situations. And I think that it's not easy to coach, but it, it may be a little bit easier to coach effort than anything else because it's something that, you know, players can control. And I think you can do that through film. You know, the film, we call it the truth box, uh, the computer. It's the truth is right there in front of you. Um, and I think every player has empathy for being able to control what they can control. And that's the effort part. And I think that's the number one thing, especially with us is we're fortunate enough to have, you know, Giannis um, being our best player and he plays hard every single possession. And I think he sets the tone day in, day out, whether it's practice, game, whatever it may be. And, you know, he, he's a guy that just helps us kind of hold everybody else accountable because he's uh, held accountable right at the top. 
Yeah, it's great to have those players and that player-led, you know, identity or or leadership within it. So, Coach, we often think about offense and breaking down components of offense in terms of different categories. We're going to do that a little bit with you with the defense and and this concept of, you know, offensive buckets is what I discussed with uh, Darko on the podcast that we did on offense. So today we're going to talk about defensive installation, installing a defense, talking about day one of training camp and talking about these different categories, so to speak. Can you talk about some of the things that are so important when we talk about installing a defense? Maybe let's just list them and then we'll dive into each of them a little bit deeper. Yeah, sure. And I, you know, I think it, it varies from coach to coach, but you know, at least for me, I think the number one thing is transition defense. You start there and then you go to your half court defense, you know, your closeouts, your one-on-one defense, team shell, how you guard post-ups and pick and rolls and DHOs, off-ball screens, and then, you know, how you finish your defense. Um, And then I think it can get more detailed from there, like how you defend with a small lineup, big lineup. Um, But I really think it goes in that order uh, when you're, you're teaching your defense. And, and to me and to us, I think transition is where it all starts and ends. You know, those, it's something you don't want to give up those easy baskets and let a team get going. So for us, that's where it starts. So speaking to that, then if we're going to the first moment that you install anything on the defensive end, is it starting with transition? Yeah, it always starts with transition. I mean, the great teams, the offensive teams and the great players always find a way to get easy baskets. And a a lot of times that starts in control, getting back, getting set, not giving up those easy baskets and making a team work for everything. And, and for us, that's where we start our teaching transition defense. First thing we, that we teach in training camp. And then when we watch film as a team, a lot of times it, it starts on the transition defensive end, whether it's opponent scouting, self scouting, uh, team film, whatever we're doing, transition's always the number one thing. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier about being consistent um, having a consistent message and, and the players know how important that is to us. Yeah. Tremendous. And, uh, you know, installing then the half court defense, are we starting from shell? Or are we starting from one-on-one? Where are we starting from in terms of the half court defensive install? So to me, I think it really starts with the closeout and, you know, how you want to guard the ball, uh, in a one-on-one situation. And then I think you can build it out from there. So I think in today's NBA, like it used to be no middle was a big emphasis. We wanted to influence baseline so that, you know, your, your shell rotations from the bottom man helping coming over uh, the V back guy, V backing down. And, you know, it's kind of, everyone's on a string, but I think to be honest now, like at least for my thinking and philosophy, like I think if you just focus on keeping a guy in front the best that you can, Maybe you try to stay square, but, you know, get on his top shoulder a little bit so that he doesn't just blow by you middle. But um, players are so good nowadays that if you can keep it simple for your players and just tell them, like, look, keep them in front the best you possibly can, I think that's where it starts. Then the closeout itself, is there a single way that you're teaching a closeout to NBA players or is it kind of what they came with and then trying to make it better? I think uh, it's been different. Like I've been fortunate enough to be in a lot of 
different places and then to be able to teach it myself. And I think what's important to me is that you keep it simple. Like I've seen where, you know, you're, there's masters at teaching the technical close out, right? Like you may chop your feet, you may not, you, you know, your hand may be up. It might not. At the end of the day, I think that the guys just, you want that effort um, to close out as hard as you can. Everyone's different. Close out the best you can. Some guys may close short because they don't want to get beat. Um, it may vary if you're closing out to a great shooter. You may have a little more attention to detail and emphasis to get out there a little bit faster. So I do think, though, at training camp, you do have to have a way to teach it. The way I'd like to do it is close out with an early stick hand, which is you know, just your, your hands up in the air. You're trying to deter the guy from just shooting an open catch-and-shoot three. He may see your hand and hesitate. And then, you know, you just, we don't teach chopping your feet. Just get out there, get square and try to keep them in front. Keep it simple for them. Love it. Love that uh, definition and, and, and teaching points. And then you also mentioned simplicity. Would people be surprised about how simple it is at, in the NBA? Because I think people's perception is as you move up in levels, everything gets more complex. And to a certain extent, that's true. But when you talk about defense and defensive install, is it, would we be surprised how simple it is? Yeah. And again, it varies with different coaches believe in different things. And to me, I think simplicity is critical because if you're going back to, you know, your principles and your philosophy competing, being the number one thing, if you get guys thinking a little bit too much or they're trying to do a technique, right. Rather than just compete and, and stop the player or stop the play. I think keeping things simple uh, gives them a freedom of mind to just, you know, go out there and play hard. And you do have to have, you know, your, your things that you hold them accountable, you know, within each bucket. But I think for the most part, keeping it simple, keeps them competing. And that goes back to our number one philosophy. That's great. That's great. So you talked about closeouts and this one-on-one defense, and then what are we moving to from there in terms of install? I think the shell defense is really important. That's really where it's not always perfect in a game, right? And you can practice it. Like you watch us practice, or maybe our shell drill looked absolutely perfect. But we all know the game isn't always like that. So I think what it does, though, is gives the team a sense of uh, trust um, that they know that, look, we're guarding NBA players. We're going to get beat. Uh, we want to know that our teammates are there to help us. And I think that's where it it kind of builds that trust a little bit in practice. You know what the rotations are supposed to be. And then at the end of the day, you may have to scramble for each other and help each other. And that's, that can be all part of a shell drill. But I think that's the next installation is building that trust and that togetherness. Well, that's super. They're just making that connection that the shell drills equals trust. And then, because the other part that you alluded to is the importance of decision-making on defense, because rarely is it perfect in terms of the rotation and everything else. Yeah, no question. I mean, at the end of the day, like we know this is, it's hard to do this stuff. It's hard to keep an NBA player in front of you. Um, it's hard to always stay alert and be there to help your teammate. But, you know, you've got to do the hard things if you want to be successful. And you watch our team play in Milwaukee. We're fortunate that we got players that, that want to do the hard things uh, that, and they want to be successful. 
Always helps, always helps in terms of those things. And uh, so how quickly are we getting to ball screen defense, off the ball screening, different types of things like that post defense? How quickly are we getting to those things? Yeah, I think that's next. You pick and rolls, like the NBA is a pick and roll league. There's a ton of pick and roll set uh, per game. So I think that, you know, the first thing you have to do with pick and roll defense is you have to look at your roster. And, you know, with us, we have Brooke Lopez, Robin Lopez. They're great at being back and protecting the rim. And we're fortunate enough to have perimeter defenders and Eric Bledsoe and you know, Chris Middleton, Wes Matthews, you know, George Hill, the list goes on, that they want to get into the ball. They want to fight over under screens uh, without allowing themselves to get screened. And I think that when we first look at your roster and you look at what are these guys' strengths, that's how you kind of formulate your pick-and-roll defense. And it's been different in a lot of different places that I've been. It was a little different in Atlanta. Uh, when Coach Bud was there and uh, a little different in Erie when I was there, depending on the, the uh, personnel we had. But once you establish what's best for your team, you put in your base pick and roll defense. And uh, I think that's that's the next thing. So maybe give us an idea then. You talked about personnel and how much it influences defense, which makes sense. But give us an example. What would be, and you don't have to name a specific player, but what would t- be the type of profile that would change your philosophy on how you would cover pick and rolls? So I think you have to have a philosophy at first on, you know, what you're, you're trying to stop on each possession. How are you going to win a possession, you know, when a pick and roll is run? And I think to me, not fouling in pick and rolls is, is critical. So showing your hands, especially when you're guarding the ball and, and the screen is coming and then we don't want to give up anything at the rim. We don't want to foul at the rim. We don't want to give up open layups. We want to make everything difficult. And I think with analytics now, um, you know, you can take analytics, look at the numbers and apply it to your beliefs and your philosophy and trying to make them shoot tough twos, twos off the dribble that are contested, hopefully rear view contested by our guards. And that way our bigs can box out the roller and go and rebound. I think that's really what, you know, we're looking for. And that's, that's really what I believe in as a coach. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can do that dropping your big back. You can be up picking rolls and trying to make it a little more difficult. And, you know, depending on how you do your rotations from there, you can still try to influence a team to take those tough twos. But, you know, like you said, you got to take a look at the roster who you have and try to build your pick and roll defense around what you believe in. Like analytics have changed schemes, right? How much have they changed in terms of actually what you teach in terms of individual defense? I think when you look at like the most efficient shots on offense or layups, obviously free throws, and then it's always been corner threes, but I think just catch and shoot threes in general are a big emphasis now. And I think you can change, you know, what you're willing to give up. You can't stop everything, right? The NBA players are so good that the score is never going to be zero to zero. So you got to take a look at what you're willing to live with. And to me, if you can really, really lock in and focus on not giving up easy baskets at the rim, not putting players on the free throw line and not giving up open catch and shoot threes, 
I think that that's where the analytic comes in. And, and I think you can get buy-in from the players using those numbers and also just using examples. So it's very cool. And obviously this leads us to a whole bunch of things, but, you know, just talking about defense and the install of defense and now you've installed it and now we get to game situations and adjustments. What are some possible adjustments that can be made on defense within say your defensive scheme that can change the flow of the game? So I think you have to have a few different adjustments and you have to practice them. You know, if you're a team that, you know, is more your back more and pick and rolls, your bigs are back and they're really looking to protect the rim and you're playing against a great player. Like there's Kemba Walker, Bradley Beal, just to name a couple in the East. Like you may have to adjust and have your bigs be up a little bit more and try to pressure them and get the ball out of their hands. So you may install like a, a blitzing type pick and roll defense. That's an adjustment that you need to practice. Your players need to understand, you know, if, they're really hurting us in our base defense. Maybe we turn up the pressure, try to get it out of their hands, try to cause some turnovers. And then, you know, you may go to switching defense. You know, you may switch with a smaller lineup. You may switch with a bigger lineup. But I think that you have to have an order of adjustments that you want to go to. And, and that can change depending on who you're playing. I think that's all part of like opponent scouting and having a game plan going in. But you got to practice those things. You got to use the adjustments in the game so that you have film to show the team. You have things that you can talk about that you need to continue to work on. And then ultimately you're sharp in your base defense and your adjustments when it comes playoff time. So thinking about that, then you talked about practicing adjustments, like from a coach's perspective, high school, college, whatever it may be, what are some ways to be able to practice these adjustments within your practices? So I think in putting your players in situations where they need to work on their pick and roll defense, whether it's you know player on player in the half court, or if you have enough coaches or guys in the video room that can play offense, it's something we did in Erie with the Bayhawks. We were fortunate enough to have coaches and player development coaches and a couple of video guys that could still move and play. And a lot of times... I would take those guys and put them on offense and, you know, I would tell the defense, okay, we're in our drop coverage, pick and roll coverage. And I would have the coaches kind of get together and plan beforehand on how they're going to go through like their little pick and roll shell and what kind of actions they're going to run. So the players need to figure it out and talk through it and, and guard it a certain way. And, you know, then I may have that group rotate and go to another drill. And then when they come back, it may be the same thing, but I may tell the players, you know, look, now we're in our blitz pick and roll. So you're guarding different pick and rolls, different situations that they don't know are coming. And that's that was really good for us in Erie. We were fortunate enough to have coaches that were prepared enough and that, that could move to do that. But I think the more random situations you can put them in, and it's not always going to look pretty. Practice shouldn't always look pretty, in my opinion. Uh, but that's how they learn, and that's how they start talking to each other. And uh, I found that that's been really helpful. Good stuff. And you talked about switching. Is that is that one of the adjustments of smaller ball ball lineups that you would go to for switching? Or I mean, you obviously you have some unique talents that can switch at at big size. But when you talk about small ball on defense, what does that mean? 
So I think if the other team goes small and they have maybe four smalls up there, even five at times, and depending on your roster, depending on who you have, and like for us in Milwaukee, we're fortunate enough to have versatile defenders, you may switch to you know try to keep everybody in front and make the other team play one-on-one. But I think a lot of times, like some teams may go to switching too early. And I know, you know, especially for us with our defenders and them being versatile and our beliefs, we want them to stay with their own a lot of times. And I think that creates a mindset mentality that, look, we want you to guard your guy. We have you matched up a certain way for a reason. And then a lot of times too, when you switch, you're vulnerable to offensive rebounding. And so I I think it's a feel type thing. I think you do have to have it for sure. And in the playoffs, you see a lot more of it. But, you know, me personally, I wouldn't be more apt to, to go to that quickly. I like to wait till maybe the fourth quarter to try to adjust to that if need be. Talk to me a little bit about jumbo then. Is that the opposite? Yeah, so I think, you know, depending again on your, on your roster, you can go big. I mean, we're fortunate enough to have a guy like Giannis who can really play all five positions. So, you know, we may put him at the, the three sometimes um, with two other bigs. And I think that, you know, that allows us to maybe protect the rim a little bit more, a little bit better. It's, you know, something that we're fortunate enough to have with him. But sometimes it's better to go big. And it's not necessarily offensively you want to play slower, but maybe defensively they're hurting you at the rim. You want a little more rim protection in there. Um, so it's a good, good option that we're fortunate enough to have to go to. Hey, Coach. Brief interruption of the podcast. I'd like to take a second to shout out the network that helps distribute our show. Armchair Media. Armchair is a collection of 50 plus podcasts, including ours, trying to localize the sports world a little bit more. We've been very fortunate to join them over the last three months and have enjoyed growing our audience with theirs. Starting June 1st, Bet Online will serve as a title sponsor for Armchair as well as our show. They have live and simulated sports as well as $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge you can enter for free. Visit betonline.ag on your computer or mobile device to check out the action. BetOnline is your online wagering solution. To see all things Armchair, search Armchair Media wherever you get your pods. Also check out Armchair's website, armchairmedianetwork.com, and their social channels at Armchair Media. Armchair Media, those who can do, those who can't, hashtag take a seat. Now back to the podcast. And then personnel game plan. We're talking about your personnel and the opponent personnel in terms of maximizing your advantage and minimizing theirs, right? Yeah, definitely. I I think that um, when you look at another team's personnel, like you're going to have a player, two or three that are obviously very, very good. And you may have, you know, certain little personnel notes that you want to try to stop them, like, staying down on someone's pump fakes. Um, it's a way that they like to go to the line and get themselves going to get easy baskets. It may be as simple as influencing someone a certain direction, whether it's pick and rolls or ISO situations. Um, I think that you have to have that, especially in the playoffs. I think that's where you always hear the word adjustments in the playoffs, right? Like everyone always says, oh, I wonder what adjustments they're going to make. I think that, those type of small personnel adjustments um, 
are really important to have and to have worked on in the regular season so that you you have them in the playoffs. And then when we think about building a defense as any level of coach is before we even get to obviously the implementation, are we thinking about our personnel? Is that number one or how much of it comes back to a coach's basic philosophy in terms of defense at the NBA level? I think, you know, as a coach, you have your, your philosophy, the things that you truly believe in that, you know, bother you uh, to your core. And I think it's important to stay true to who you are and what you believe in. But I think that it's part of something I've learned being around coach Bud and some of the other great coaches I've been around is you can stick to who you are and what you believe in, but it's important to take a look at the roster and how do you play, whether it's offensively, defensively with the type of roster that you have. Um, I think there's always a way to keep your core beliefs intact, but develop your, you know, your defensive schemes around uh, your roster. Cause at the end of the day, it's all about putting the players in position to be successful. And I think that's a big part of coaching. That's something I've seen coach Bud do. He's brilliant at it. So I, I absolutely think that's, that's your number one thing you need to look at. Very cool. Very cool. And another thing, and probably so not often as often discussed as it should be is end of game situations or out of ATO defense. What are some things, let's start with ATOs first. What are some things coaches should think about coming out of ATOs with your defense beyond obviously scout that you, you anticipate certain things probably happening. What are some other things that you're cueing your players to think about or to do? So I think you can have, you know, maybe a particular emphasis after a timeout. You may want to, just to mix it up, you may want to blitz all pick and rolls just out of this one timeout and maybe just work on it, give it a look, mix it up, keep the opponent guessing. A lot of teams now, they may zone out of timeouts. There's a few teams that are are known for that. They may just play zone one possession to try to disrupt your ATO play that you've drawn up. So I think that you can use timeouts to different defenses, get a quick look at it, confuse uh, the opponent. Um, and I think it's just strategically something that, you know, coaches should play around with. And, and there's a lot of teams that have had success with it. So, yeah. And, and thinking about the end of game situations now, or, you know, even the basic level we can talk about, let's start with baseline inbound defense. What are some things we should be thinking about on baseline inbound defense? So, Again, like there's, especially in the NBA, there's not a ton of baseline out of bounds situations. It's kind of unique, a little different from college. But there are some teams that they may just zone baseline out of bounds plays, again, to mix it up. At the end of a game, certain situations, it's like if the ball's uh, on the baseline and your opponent is down by one, you know, you're up by one. There are things you may do where you may sub and put a taller player on the inbound defender and have him angled to protect the basket, to give up any lobs, um, that type of thing. But, you know, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's not a ton of baseline out of bounds in the NBA. And I think depending on the situation, uh, you may look at defending it differently. And uh, knowing there's not a ton of, baseline out of bounds it's because there's a ton of sideline out of bounds so talk to us about sideline yeah for sure and i think 
end of, when you're talking end of game defense, a lot of times it's predicated out of a sideline out of bounds format. So, you know, that's where I think you have to practice different situations when you're up by three, up by two, um, you know, down by two short clock, low clock situations. You've got to practice those things. And, you know, whether it's, you know, you're down by two, there's eight seconds left in the game. And, you know, you may trap the first pass that comes in. You may get a quick trap, try to get a steal. Then if it's not there, you foul. Um, you know, there's there's so many different situations uh, that you can look at and practice. And you know, whether you're you put a small uh, defensive lineup out there and you want to switch before the ball comes in, you want to switch everything after the ball comes in. I think it's all predicated on on the time to score in the situation, but you can absolutely practice those things and you can also use film to learn from those things. Well, let's talk about some of them then. So you already talked about let's trap first pass. Uh, let's talk about where you start on the inbounder and then you I don't know what it is, a one-two count. You can talk to me about what you teach in terms of situations. And then that player is running off the inbounder to disrupt an entry. Yeah, so that's an interesting kind of concept that we've seen over the past couple of years that a lot of teams, I think, offensively will maybe zipper up the offensive player. And if you're guarding uh, the guy that has the ball out of bounds, you may run off of him and try to take away that pass I've seen some teams do it over the past couple of years. And I think that's all part of coaches or teams philosophy. But I think, you know, it's like we talked about, like you may trap first pass, um, trying to get a steal depending on the situation. But, you know, if you're up by um, three points, you may play a defense where you're switching before the ball comes in and um, you may almost play behind guys. We've done that before in Milwaukee where you're just saying, look, we're not giving up a free. They're driving it. They're going and shoot it too, no matter what. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, like you said, there's all kinds of different situations that you can look at, but that's a unique one that I've seen us do that I hadn't seen anywhere else is literally playing behind guys to force them to take a shot inside the three-point line. Yeah, I imagine that's uh, more and more like just top blocking and different things like that to be able to prevent. We saw it a little bit with Utah against uh, Houston, you know, in terms of that unique defense too, playing on top of someone. It's fascinating to be able to see what you guys are going to come up with when you get to think about basketball all the time, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, there's so many different situations. And, you know, it's just, it's interesting. We talk about it as coaches all the time. And, it's great to be um, with a group of players that love to talk about it as well. They were open to it. And, you know, Coach Bud does a great job involving them and talking to them, giving the players a voice and just makes them feel that much more invested. Is that some of the, is that some of the cool part, you know, that you get to have a lot of these informal conversations about basketball, technical, tactical, whatever it may be, not just with coaches, but with players as well, you know, at this highest, highest level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you really think about it, the NBA is, is the best players in the world. And as coaches, like we can learn so much from the players. They're really the smartest ones because they're actually out there feeling it, playing the game. Um, and I think to be able to talk to them, get their thoughts on how they're feeling about certain situations, how we're doing particular things is important because 
it's really got to be a partnership. We don't really want a dictatorship where we're just always telling the players what to do. Um, we want them to take ownership of it. And honestly, like that's, that's part of the brilliance of, of coach Bud is he is a master at that. Um, there's been other coaches, Scott Brooks in Oklahoma city was very good at that as well. And I think that that's, that's critical, um, when you're an NBA head coach. So we talked about, you know, a little bit of the progression in terms of install. Let's talk about teaching now in terms of teaching defense, especially teaching defense within practice. When we get to some more live offense versus defense, this is more training camp. Let's focus on that because that's really the only time you're live offense versus defense, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's a tough with the NBA schedule. Um, you may have opportunities where you have two days off before a game and you may take a day off and then you may go light and have a little bit of contact the day before, but it's very short and, you know, it's very rare during the NBA schedule. So then in this training camp situation, uh, talk to me about how you're coaching the defense within competitive offense versus defensive play. Yeah. You know, I've been around coaches that do it differently. Um, you know, in the training camp situation, uh, you know, some coaches that I've been around may stop it um, any, every moment that they see a teaching point. And that's one style, one way to do it. Um, I've been around other coaches that if there's a critical situation where they want to make a point is when they'll stop it. Um, and for me personally, doing it in Erie, um, I was more out to let them play, uh, let them play through mistakes. And then a lot of times just take film um, off of the practice. So, you know, I may sit with my staff after a training camp practice, watch the film, break it down and make a team edit to show the team the next day. We may take those things and, and drill them at the beginning of practice. And then when we go and play again, uh, you know, the guys know that this is a point of emphasis, something we want to do better. And a lot of times I've, I've found that beneficial, uh, letting players play through it when you scrimmage and then trying to teach off of the film. Well, and talk to us about film then. Uh, are, are we doing, in terms of uh, defensive focus, are we doing a lot of group film or are we doing more small group film or individual film? I know you do it all, but what's the most important part of that in your opinion? Yeah, uh, I think the most important part is the team film. Um, like you said, you do it all. Uh, the head coach will watch individual film with with players throughout the year, and obviously the assistants are doing it on a daily basis and preaching a coach's message and holding guys accountable uh, in your own way individually. But the team film is is critical because I think that it's important as a staff that you go into a team film with an edit that isn't too long. Um, it's very specific, broken up into particular defensive sections so that the players understand what they're getting ready to watch. Um, and then I think the most important thing is holding everybody accountable the same way. And, and, you know, you can, as a coach, you can make the film look almost any way you want it to look. Um, and for myself, being fortunate enough to start in a video room, you learn how to do that. The film should really tell a story. Um, so when you're watching team film on defense, you're holding everybody accountable. It's telling the story of where we need to improve or where we are improving. And then 
really the players should walk out of that film room having a couple of things that they know that they just got better at by seeing themselves on film. And then maybe we're going out to practice to really work on those things. So you're trying to connect the film to the practice court in terms of the transition. So you're usually doing film before practice. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, you know, if you can watch it and then go out and do it, I'm like, you know, our message is trying to get better every single day. And when the guys leave a practice facility after a film and a practice day, there's those couple of specific things that they know walking out of that building that they got better at that day. Very cool. And uh, with film then, how honest should we be with film? How direct can we be? Because obviously we have to balance ego and all these different things, especially when it's in a group environment. So what are some best practices in terms of getting our point across, but not embarrassing the player or not putting them on the spot? Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's really important in the NBA. Um, and I think there's, there's a feel aspect that goes along with that. Um, I think you need to, to have a great feel for where your team is right now, where each player is. Um, I've done it different ways and I've seen it done by other head coaches in different ways, but there may be a situation where there's a reoccurring issue with a player who's just, we can't for whatever reason, get him to do what we want him to do. Um, and you may take him in as a head coach individually and watch a couple of the clips with him. The truth is right there in front of him. You have a particular tone that you want uh, that that film session to, to feel like. And, you know, you may have a one-on-one with a player and then tell him, like, look, we're going to watch team film today. Uh, this part, this section of, of uh, film is going to be on the edit. And I've got to hold you accountable in front of everybody. And we've got to get you to do this if we want to be successful as a team. And that's one way of doing it. Um, I also think, you know, when you're just going through the team film, there's a engagement level where you have to engage the players. Um, and there's, there's always a particular tone. Like I mentioned before, like, what do you want the tone of that film to be? Do you want it to be, do you want to be a little bit angry you want it to be a little feel good. Um, again, goes back to whatever the team needs at that moment. So I think that that a lot is on the head coach and the staff um, on how you manage each guy and how you manage your team. Take us through then, because we've talked about this, you've mentioned this, you basically don't practice in the same way that we would think about practice in terms of the college or uh, uh, high school level. So talk to us about game day installation of a defensive game plan. What are we, what are the steps that you would take players through? And let's acknowledge you've got the greatest players in the world. Obviously they're learning curves, different things like that. They wouldn't need as many reps. So let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about your install of a defensive game plan from one game to the next. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it starts in the morning. Um, You know, you may meet at 10 o'clock for a shoot around and, Whichever assistant coach has that team may go through a quick game plan for the night, things that are important, how you want to guard particular things, um, talk about matchups, personnel, that type of thing. And, and, you know, you may go out and walk through three to five plays. And a lot of times, like, I think you can go about this two different ways. You could walk through maybe the other team's most frequent plays that they run. Um, I do think it's hard 
for players and and I don't think that they they necessarily should be able to remember the actual play call names but you may take a look at you know their five most frequent plays or I think you can also look at it as maybe you go through two of their most frequently run plays but you walk through three other plays that cover a, a particular concept that's important that night whether it be like a you know a Kyrie Irving in pick and roll or uh, Jason Tatum coming off off ball screens, you know, that, that type of thing. So you can kind of hit two different things at one time and, you know, you go through them, you walk through them and then the, the team may break and warm up. And, and I think you can go through like small little breakdown drills to cover those concepts or those plays. And the guys can just feel it, you know, whether it's full speed, three quarter speed, they can feel how, you know, we're going to guard particular plays or, or concepts that night. And from game day walkthrough, um, describe to us then, when we're talking about walkthrough, offense versus defense, is this coaches on offense or coaches on defense, or is the whole team involved in, 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 the, in, involved in this process? So I think, um, again, it's different in different places. But to me personally, I think it's important to have player on player. And you know, they're just walking through it. It's a great opportunity for assistant coaches to, you know, speak to the team, present themselves, you know, walk through uh, particular plays and coverages uh, with the entire team to kind of develop your voice. And, and then, you know, you may walk through it with the starters on defense first, and then you can flip it and you can get the five guys coming off of the bench running through it as well. Um, so to me, I think player on player is really important. And again, in the walkthrough, they're literally just walking or jogging through it. So, you know, it's just a great way for everyone to feel it rather than just standing there and watching it. Yeah, no doubt. It makes everyone feel more involved in the process as well. So, and then what type of other things are we doing throughout the day in terms of showing them more film pregame, telling them obviously some of the important cues or type of things that we're focused on in terms of the defense? What are those next level things that we get to? So I think, uh, especially for younger players, you may have to spend a little more time with them. And you know, as an assistant coach, you may make a small little personnel edit on some guys that they may guard that night, just so they can continue to learn the league, learn the personnel around the league. You know, you may take a player, whether it's a young player, a veteran player, and show them one or two clips of what they may see the opponent do that night, maybe how they're going to guard us or how we're going to guard them and just keep planting the seed, uh, not overdoing it, but it's a long day. And, um, you know, we don't want to clutter the mind too much um, of the players, but there are little bullets and little things that you can do to, to emphasize a certain point that's important. And, you know, once they get to the arena, they go through their little individual you know, 10 minute warm up out on the floor. And a lot of times that's just routine type thing. We're not really talking or working on too much about what's going to happen that night. I think it's more film after their, their little individual warm up. And then within the game, if you need to have an intervention for a specific player about something they're not doing well on defense, how is that best done? So I think there's a few different ways to do it. Sometimes it may come from an assistant coach. Uh, you know, he may grab a player and, and challenge him a little bit over on the side. 
maybe when he's out of the game or he's about to walk back into the game out of the huddle. A lot of times, too, the head coach may just grab a guy one off on the side, put his arm around him and try to challenge him a little bit or encouraging him that he's doing a great job on, you know, not fouling LeBron James, making it tough on him all night. Keep it going. Um, keep fighting. Keep competing. And then I, I also think there is that situation where, you know, we're in a huddle and, and the head coach has to call out a particular player. Again, it goes back to the feel of the head coach. Maybe he can feel the team is a little frustrated by a particular guy not sprinting back in transition or complaining to the referees or whatever it may be. So I, I think there's all different ways to do it. And it, again, it goes back to the feel. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear that. And then in terms of that, and then in terms of team adjustments within the game, you've talked about that process and some of the possible adjustments, but how are these adjustments being made? Are they being made on the fly sometimes? Are they being made just after timeouts, uh, dead ball situations? What are some ways that we can in, uh, well, can implement these adjustments? Yeah, it's a great question. I think going into it, uh, there's a game plan. Uh, for that opponent and you may have you know your first and second adjustments that are in the back of your mind that you know you may go to um, after a timeout it might be in the first half it might be in the second half I think that's one way to do it I do think that there are adjustments made on the fly Um, if there's a particular lineup uh, the other team has in there and they're hurting us on a particular play then the head coach may yell out a particular adjustment Um, you know, for that, you know, that lineup that's out there. And then when they change lineups or we change lineups, you may yell out going back to our base coverage. Um, So that's another way to do it. And, you know, there's also, uh, I think, ways to do it where, you know, the head coach will take one particular player aside and tell him like, hey, if you want to force this guy left a bit more, go right and do it. And he'll almost do that without, um, announcing it to the entire team because it's more of a personnel type thing. So I've seen it different ways. Um, I think it's important for your team to be able to adjust out of timeouts on the fly um, individually. Uh, you know, watching film at halftime, it might be as a team, we might show an adjustment that we're going to make. So, you know, it's on us to adjust at the right time. It's on the players to make sure that they're locked in and they can make the necessary adjustment coach can't thank you enough just really really great insights in terms of nba defense install implementation and then obviously a deeper dive on adjustments and just thinking about some of those things so thanks for spending the time and sharing the game with us yeah chris thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and you know i wish you and and your family the best right now stay safe and healthy out there Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.